iOS 15 is finally here and we are entering in a new era of digital marketing. Why? Because the data that companies will be able to collect on you will be severely limited, which also makes it more challenging for marketers and folks in digital sales to focus on, on building those user personas and, and building out your marketing plans because we're not having access to that first-party data, honing in on those buyer personas and helping that sales team make those adjustments in a cookie-less world. That's our main topic for today as we focus on building out your circular marketing plan. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Bromley, owner of Digital Dispatch, and we cover B2B marketing, the attention economy, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, we're going to be covering ways to collect and prioritize your first-party data. Adrian Barnes is helping us create buyer personas that don't suck. And then Forrest Dumbrow is breaking down the processes you're missing in your sales and marketing plans. All of this is going to help you create that circular marketing plan in this new cookie-less world, especially as iOS 15 comes into play. And as I mentioned iOS 15, let's go ahead and jump into the first topic because it's the first part of really that circular marketing plan. And that is iOS 15 because one of the features, one of the newest features from Apple is really privacy-focused. And they go on to say, mail privacy protection stops senders from learning whether an email has been opened and hides IP addresses so senders can't learn a user's location or use it to build a profile on them. Now, a little bit of a translation for that is if you're sending any kind of emails out to your audience, that data is going to be severely limited now. You're not going to be able to know the location. You're not going to know whether a user opens up the email or not. That is all going away specifically for iPhone users. Now, you will have to rely on whenever you're sending out your emails, you're going to be focusing on making users take a specific action in the email. So think of your email as having a, a certain call to action within the email itself. So you're not going to be tracking the opens and, and whether or not su your subject line was, was great or not. It who knows anymore? What you're going to have to focus on is making the user create or take a certain action within that email. So that's where you're going to have to focus a lot of your time and energy. Like clicking on a link to a landing page. That's a great example of how you can make your emails, it, it, how you can track the performance of your emails. And if you're sending those timely emails and if they're relevant to your audience. So that's one way you're going to be able to track. Another way you're going to be able to track is you've always been able to measure your subscribes and your unsubscribes. But after you send a campaign, now you're going to have to go back in and you're going to have to check whether, that, whether it resulted in a, a spike in unsubscribes comparatively to your previous campaigns that you've sent. So that's how you're really going to know if that email is performing well or not by having the user take a specific action or by having the, the measurability of, of measuring the unsubscribes and the subscribes within that email campaign itself. So those are really the two metrics that you're only going to be able to use for specifically iPhone users. Now, will this spread over to Android users or even Windows phone users? We're not exactly sure yet. But if Apple usually starts doing something like this, other companies typically follow. That remains to be seen. But that's those are going to be some of the metrics that you're going to have to be that you're going to have to watch. Now, the next one on the privacy 
privacy update is, is their new privacy controls. Now, this coming from Apple, it says their app privacy report offers an overview of how apps use the access that has been granted to location, photos, camera, microphone, and contacts in the last seven days and which other domains are contacted. And so that pretty much means that any apps that rely heavily on users sharing personal information, usually without their knowledge, that data gravy train has ended. But this has already been kind of in the works for a few months. If you already use an iPhone, you've probably seen that warning pop up on your phone asking if you want to be tracked by certain apps. If you said yes, you'll be able to track that info in Apple's new privacy report. However, Recent numbers from Statista, I probably butchered that, uh, show 83% of users who saw the dialog box opted out of tracking. So that's additional data that's being taken away from people who focus on advertising campaigns in particular. And so all of this means is that it's never been more important to collect that first-party data. Now, when I mentioned first-party data, there's really three different data types that you should be aware of. So First-party data is like Google Analytics, um, data that you collect from your website, your CRM, customer surveys, your own social media channels. That's first-party data. Now, second-party data is when you buy a targeted email list um, or if you attend a trade show or sponsor a trade show and you get access to all of the emails of the the people that were in attendance. That's second-party data. Third-party data is social media networks, other apps, um, et cetera. They, they, they use cookies and pixels in order to collect information on you. Even if you're not actively using that software or using that app, that third-party data collects this information from you, or maybe your friend of a friend on Facebook, and they, you know, play a certain casino game, you know, before that casino game, if the person gave them that permission level, they would be able to collect data on that specific user and then all of their friends and their contacts within their friend base. That's considered third-party data. That's what's being the most impacted by all of these new privacy updates, by all of these privacy changes that are coming into the mainstream play. Now, Apple is the, the first to come out with privacy protections that protect users. And then starting in 2022, Google has announced that they're just going to get rid of the cookies in, in the browser, period. So they're going to be getting rid of those as well. And so that third-party data is really what's going to be affected the most. Second party data is mostly fine, but it still relies on you with the person making, getting those, that contact information and making that cold outreach. So there's still a little bit of a, who is this person reaching out to me with second party data? And you still have to make sure that that list is, whether it's an email list or whether it's a contact list that you got from an event, those are still data points that you have to filter through to make sure that that audience is even right for your product or your service. The first party data is what everyone should be targeting, should be going after. And so that's what you should actually be striving for. And so let's talk about a few different tips in order to manage that first or start collecting that first party data. And that is first and foremost, a Facebook pixel. Now, I just went through a whole bunch of reasons of why Facebook is sort of uh, the anti-privacy company, but their pixel data and their advertising 
still is very sophisticated. And so if you don't have control over your own Facebook pixel, maybe you don't even know what it is. This is something, it's a little bit of code that you can get from your Facebook business page. If you intend to start advertising anytime in the future, you should have a Facebook pixel installed on your website. That way you can have a better idea of the user demographics of the people that are actually visiting your site. Now, whether that will go away in the future, it probably will, but it also will probably be a couple of years before Facebook decides to do that. We don't necessarily have a good uh, roadmap for, for these kind of things when it comes to Facebook in particular, but install that Facebook pixel even if you're not sure you're ever going to run advertisements ever in the future, because having that information of who is visiting your site is really beneficial to start building out your user profiles of, of who, and demographics of who's coming to your site and why. And you can start theorizing and, and managing your campaigns around that. Another way to do this and manage your first party data is start collecting emails directly on your site. So whether you're sending out an email newsletter right now, if you're sending out maybe uh, safety updates to your drivers, uh, communications to shippers, anything like that, make sure you're collecting those emails directly on your site. And bonus points if you add in additional fields that ask how that person heard of you. So not necessarily a drop-down box. You want to keep this as a text field where someone can just enter in some information and tell, tell your marketing department or your sales department of how they actually heard about you. And you'd be surprised how often, very often, that information is inconsistent with what, say... Uh, you know, Google Analytics reports will give you or HubSpot marketing reports will give you. A lot of these attribution reports that I've talked about in previous shows, they're flawed in a way where if a user finds out about your company or maybe they see a social media post, then they're going to go to Google and they're going to do a Google search for your company name and find your website that way. If they, that user ends up converting on your site saying they want to maybe uh, book a sales call or book a demo, then that attribution report from these big companies, these big marketing tech companies, that's going to tell them that they got that information from organic search from Google. When in reality, it could be your podcast, it could be a video that you did, it could be from your LinkedIn profile. But this way, if you're collecting emails on your site, then you can give the user that, it, that ability to tell them exactly how they heard of you. And a, nine times out of 10, it will be vastly different than what marketing software or marketing attribution software will tell you. Now, the third tip, and I know I just talked about Google Analytics here, but Google Analytics and social media control and access. I can't tell you how many times that I have worked with clients that did not have access to their own Google Analytics account. And when they couldn't get access to their own account, they couldn't make changes to it. Uh, they, they couldn't add extra people to, to the, the viewer list of who could view their data and who can be taken away from viewing that same data. And they can't make any kind of adjustments because they don't control their own account. So controlling and getting access to your social media accounts, even if a marketing agency or some outside third-party source is handling those accounts for you, make sure that you have access to them. If and when something ever terribly you know goes wrong, then you at least have control over those data points. Otherwise, you're just going to have to start over with fresh new Google Analytics, with fresh new pixels on your site. Even sometimes 
If you don't have control over those social media accounts, they'll just change the business name and then you still don't have access to your own accounts and you'd have to start all over again. So that's just a word of caution that if you don't have access to your own data, your own first party data, you need to get access to it. Don't put it on the back burner. Make sure that that gets done ASAP because one day you're going to really thank yourself for taking taking control of your own accounts, which you should have access to all of your own accounts. And access doesn't necessarily mean control. So make sure that you're the owner of the account and you also have full access to it because that is the way that you're going to be able to see the, 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 the changing of the tide when it comes to the digital marketing era and then the new era that we find ourselves in. Attention is currency and you have to use what you know about your customers and your product or service and then try to cut through the noise with great marketing and the ability to run creative experiments. But it all starts with collecting your own first party data. So how do we get started with great marketing? by having a deep understanding of our customers and what they're looking to our company in order to provide to them, which is why we're bringing in our next guest. And it's so timely to bring her in. She's Adrienne Barnes. She's the founder of Best Buyer Persona. Let's go ahead and bring Adrienne in. Thank you so much, Adrienne, for for joining the show. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How are you? And, And welcome to the show. Thank you. Yes, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Now, now you have an, an extensive career with creating content for companies like Stripe, Monday.com, Headspin. How did you find yourself writing for these big companies? Yeah, so I started off as a freelance writer um, when I very first began my career. Um, and really, it was just a matter of making good friends, making other friends who were content marketers, who were uh, copywriters, who um, had different parts of the, the job that needed to be done, essentially different marketers and doing great work once and then kind of letting people know, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do. Um, and those great friends introduced me to really great clients. And so from working with those clients, I, from reading your bio, I, I understand that you, you were working with these great clients and you were getting frustrated because they didn't know how to target their, not ne- maybe not necessarily these companies, but other people that you've worked with. And, and it was frustrating for them because they didn't know how to reach their target buyers. And that's what was sort of the light bulb moment to start up the, the, the best buyer persona. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So I started, you know, as a writer, um, previous English teacher in my in my past life. Uh, I was an English major. So the the first question that you ask is, well, who who's your audience? Who am I writing to? Um, and most of the time, the answers were pretty vague, um, or they'd hand me a buyer persona, and the the comment would be like, well, we never use this, we never look at it, but here, if you're interested, if this is what you want to <laughs> see, um, or it would be just like, well, you know, it's it's mid level marketers, or it's a it's the C suite, so go right to that. Um, and very general pain points, you know, something that you could just kind of Google what, what are some major executives pain points? Um, that's Mm -hmm. about all they would know. It wasn't very specific to their audience or their pain points. And so after hearing that, you know, through, you know, a few dozen companies and clients and freelance clients that I was working with, I was like, this is a problem. This is an issue. So we need to actually create something that will inform not just marketing, but can then turn around and inform because I work with B2B SaaS. So we want to inform product and customer success and customer service and um, you know marketing as well, of course. But really the kind of document that's accurate research that um, goes beyond just your typical Sally the sales girl type buyer persona. <laughs> I love that because it it goes so much deeper than just labeling, like you said, the the, the Sally, the the buyer persona. Where do you think that most companies get it wrong when they're starting this process of creating a buyer persona? 
Yeah, there's a lot of places you can go wrong at the very beginning. So often it's not asking yourself, what assumptions are we making? Um, That's one of the first questions I ask key stakeholders before we even begin a project, before I even ask a question outside to an audience member or a customer or a user is, what do you know? What do you need to know? And what do you, what, what assumptions are you currently making? So really being able to ask yourself, um, what, what have we kind of created an echo chamber of? And then um, going out and actually verifying or asking our own users, our own buyers, um, you know, how do you use our product? Why do you use our product? How, what do you do with it once you've used it? Um, those kinds of questions are just really important and they become... The insights and the information is invaluable, essentially, to, to former marketing and former product development. And so it sounds like whenever someone needs... I, I guess they, they, they come to you and say, we, we need to have a buyer persona created. It, does it really start with the customer interview? Because we've actually had uh, Caitlin Burgoyne, who, who created the, the, the amazing customer clarity call sheets... And she says, yeah. start with the importance of the customer interview. It kind of sounds like, you know, that that's an important step in your process as well. It, does it really start with the customer interview or do you start with maybe the assumptions that you have? Yeah. So before we begin the research, the research absolutely starts with customer interviews. Um, I do a four-pronged approach to research. So we have our customer interviews, we have surveys, we have digital intelligence analysis and social listening. So all of those things kind of build upon the other one. I don't release a survey to customers until I kind of have spoken to a few and have an idea of what kind of questions are we asking? What kind of people do we need to ask? Um, who's qualified to answer these questions? Where's our audience leaning towards? Um, but yeah, customer interviews is the one of the most pivotal ways to really discover not just who your customers are. You know, everyone says, know your customers, right? Know your customers. You need to know your customers. Um, And I say, well, really what that means though, is that you need to know who your customers are, how they behave and why they behave the way they do. And you're never going to know the why through a survey or through social listening or through the digital intelligence. The customer interviews is what gets you that deeper layer of insights into why they make the choices they do. So with a lot of, I, I would imagine with a lot of companies that they are just sort of going through the motions and maybe they have somewhat of a marketing plan where they post to social media occasionally. Um, but what about the folks who maybe have uh, don't have a, an established marketing plan yet? Would you say that buyer personas are really where they should start first and foremost and then develop their plan from there? Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, this is my main focus. So I always try not to be um, the hammer to the nail situation and see that buyer personas can fix everything. But if you have nothing, if you're pretty much starting from scratch, um, knowing who your audience is, I mean, I just heard you talk about uh, all of the third-party data information that's about to be taken away. Um, your power, the, 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 the bullet, the weapon you have against that is knowing your audience really well, knowing what communities they're in, knowing what language they speak, what kind of words resonate with them, uh, what questions they have. So that the deeper and more insightful you, um, the more you know your audience, the better off you're going to be protected against that kind of third party situation where you're not able to just kind of throw up some keywords and some ads and scrape a whole lot of information. This is going to be um, a, a really important step, creating your buyer personas. And not just buyer personas that say, well, this is their job title. This is um, you know, like their cute little name. They're a person like she 
giving them a gender, I feel like does not, does a disservice, honestly, to getting to know your audience with empathy. Um, but actually knowing what are their pain points? What are their roles? What are their responsibilities and their relationships? What job are they trying to accomplish with your product? Whether you're B2C or B2B, um, your customers or your users are using your product for something. So if you know what that is, you're going to have a much easier time finding them, resonating with them, attracting them, creating community with them um, than if you're just throwing spaghetti on the wall and trying to see what sticks. And so w- when you're creating these personas, are, what is the leading, I guess, are, are you leading with the, how are you building them, I guess, for, from a demographic standpoint? Are you building them based off of the problem or are you building them based off of the job position? Walk me through sort of, I, I guess, how many personas, I guess, an average company should have, if that's even possible. Yeah. So I always use the job to be done as a filter for the personas. Mm. That kind of creates the segment. It's the way that I segment the audience is what job are they trying to accomplish? Um, Because that does a good thing of kind of, it filters out a lot of unnecessary personas. I've heard people say, um, well, we have 12 buyer personas and they're they're very certain of this. Um, And so then I ask them like, okay, so are you creating 12 different blog posts? Did you create 12 marketing campaigns? Do you have 12 lead nurturing sequences in your email? Um, and the answer is always no, because who <laughs> I've never seen anybody who could do 12 of those. Um, so you don't actually have 12 buyer personas, right? You're not, you don't have 12 user journeys. Um, so the a, a good way to like filter and reduce that is to really create it through the lens of the job to be done. What are they trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And then once I have that information, I can say, okay. What's the average demographic of this audience? So I want to know, you know, 98% of them are male. Sometimes that's the case. Um, But I don't ever say this is Billy, the developer or whatever. Like I don't name them or segment them by their job title or by their uh, demographic. It's always through the filter of that job to be done because it's a more, Mm. it's a stronger way to segment your audience. You're not doing it upon something that's wishy-washy, like a job title. When you work for B2B SaaS companies, you see job titles like, you know, the ninja of growth and like the the architect of engineering or, you know, there's just, they just, people can make up their own titles. So it's almost irrelevant to try to, to group people according to a job title. So that job mm. creates a song, stronger segmentation that allows you to really identify who your people are and what they're trying to do with your product. And so after you, you've gone through the process of, of doing the research, of having the interviews and, and, and building those personas, how quickly or, or I guess how long does it take for you to realize if you've done a good job of it or if you've done a terrible job of it? Yeah. So as far like once you start using it. So for me, when right. I am presenting them to the, the C-suite or the CEOs, um, I always ask first, like, what are the questions you need to know? What's going on? How do you, um, what kind of questions do you need to, uh, answers do you need to be successful? And so we run through that and I make sure that the persona answers those questions. And when I start to hear things like, oh my gosh, customer success needs to know that. that they were asking that question last week or, hey, that's going to really inform our next product launch. You just told us this piece of information about what our uh, customers need. And we have a product launch coming up in six months and they were actually working on a feature yesterday that was about this. Or, oh, I can really see how marketing is going to need to know these things. Um, And the different types of information go into like where, what communities are your audience showing up in? Or um, how do they buy? What is their buyer journey? What price point are they most willing to pay? Um, all different kinds of things. So really what I call a best buyer persona 
is, is user or customer research to its fullest. We want to make sure that we are answering your questions. And it becomes successful when my clients know that they can turn around and immediately put it to use and that they want it to be used across the organization, that it doesn't just become um, a document that sits on the CMOs like Google Drive. And, and so once you, you've done all of this hard work and you, you've started implementing the, the, the different uh, marketing campaigns dependent on the buyer personas, is that something that you're building on and that you're continuously adding to those specific buyer personas? Or is it something that has maybe like a six-month shelf life and then you should revisit the whole process over again? Yeah. So I say that um, well, the reason I do um, the buyer persona on Google Slides is because I want it to be the type of document that is consistently iterated on, modified, and built on. So I don't want it to just be like, great, check, we did this, check the the box marketing practice once a year. Now we can put it aside, never look at it again. Um, Oh, and then we'll think about it next year. It needs to go on, you know, Q4's to-do list. It really should be um, a practice or or a, a piece of the culture that's continuously added to talking to your customers, knowing your audience should be um, just basically a, a core part of marketing or product. Somebody in the company needs to be able to uh, take these insights and share them around. Um, so, you know, really, I say you want to make sure that you're refreshing it before you do a product launch, before you have a marketing mm-hmm. campaign. Um, and at the very least, once a year, like at the very least, go out, do a little bit of research, a couple interviews. Are we still on the right track? But if you're doing interviews, if you're talking to a customer, one customer a week, you are never going to be slapped in the face with an insight or a shift mm-hmm. in your market that you didn't see coming. You're going to be able to notice these trends coming. You're going to be able to predict them, um, see the subtle nuances that happen. You know, oftentimes when people create these buyer personas, they come to me and they're like, well, we have, we did a really good buyer persona and they did. We just did it five years ago and we don't think it's relevant anymore. So now we need to kind of completely start from scratch, which is fine. That's great. That's what I'm here for. I will totally help you do that. Um, But if you were consistently working on that, consistently having those conversations and keeping your ear to the ground with your audience um, and recording those insights, it would not have been like, we're completely off track now. You're always kind of staying on the same the same track and, and, and you're able to see the shifts in your market and, and keep a, a close contact with your audience. So, so with most of the companies that are in logistics and freight transportation, the, the, the industry that we're in, most people or, or most of those teams don't have a marketing department. It, they, it's usually the, the business owner or, or somebody else that, that has you know, five different things that they have to do throughout the day. How, mm-hmm. What would you suggest would be the best case for, for managing the buyer personas on a consistent basis when you have a small team and maybe a limited budget? Absolutely. So I have this thing where I say you can really have a buyer persona in one hour a week. If you just get on one call a week, 30 minutes with one customer, record your insights, have that call transcribed and kind of bucket it up. This was a positive note. This was a negative note. Um, these were their pain points. If you find a good way to kind to organize that insight for you, um, one call a week with it'll take you longer, right? So it may take you 12 weeks and you're talking to 12 customers. And then finally you're like, okay, I'm really starting to see patterns. I'm really starting to understand. Um, there's a 
stat out there that says if you talk to 20 customers, you've gathered the sentiment of about 90 to 95% of your overall audience. So it doesn't take a lot of phone calls or a lot of research to really get the gist of what your audience is doing and how they behave and why they're behaving the way they are. Um, You just have to get on the phone. So really you know, one call, some people think, well, we got to do 200 and I don't have time for 200 and who's going to be able to manage that project. It's too big. Um, and I really just encourage, especially these solo, um, the the founders where we're really, you're really doing it all one call a week, one hour, um, focus that time within one quarter, you'll have a really great idea of who your audience is and your buyer persona will come together. I love that. So you're really building it into your entire work week and, and your work process instead of just trying to tackle it all at once. Now, now for the businesses that maybe have the budget to, to hire someone like you, what what, was, what does that time frame look like from when they say, okay, we're ready to go. We're going to hire you. You're going to take care of this for us. And what does how long does that process look like? And is that necessarily built into their workday? Or is it you know obviously a service that you provide? Yeah. So for me, I like to have one point of contact. um, And then that point of contact is kind of the one who's going to own it. They're owning the process. So we make sure that I've got all my information together. um, And from contract signed to buyer persona delivered, it's six to eight weeks. And the variable is how long it takes us to get customers on the phone. Um, I always do 20 user or customer interviews because I feel like that gets us that 90 to 95% sentiment of their overall audience. And that's really what I want to know. And then continuously doing that social listening and that digital intelligence analysis. So within the majority of that, about four weeks of the project is me and my team doing interviews, contacting um, their users, their customers. And then um, once all of the user interviews are done or the the customer interviews are done, then um, that's when that insights come together. That's when I start building this whole deck and really identifying what is the job, what were the pain points, what were the common things we heard over and over again, um, and how many different segments really are there in this audience. And that takes me about two weeks because it's a pretty... There's a lot of data, right? Like after you've done social listening and uh, 20 interviews and a survey that sometimes surveys can have anywhere from 100 to 300 responses usually. So, um, But by the time we're done, the, the information that's gathered and presented is just... It validates, it answers the questions, and it really informs exactly who your buyers are and how they get to you. And so that's great. I mean, within six to eight weeks, you can have this entire, I guess, mapped out journey for your buyers, mapped out for you. And then after you you say you, you hand that over to, to your client, what does that process look like for them afterwards? How are they taking that buyer persona information? And then how should they apply it to their overall marketing plan? Yeah. So the good, the the interesting thing about being on calls with customers is that there's always at the end of my buyer persona um, a link to a doc that says recommendations, things that your customers want, insights they had, um, ideas for content. So that really, after I've presented the buyer persona, it's like here are your next steps. This is how you can create a content marketing plan from this. That's another one of my personal services. I'm a content strategist. So that's kind of really easily where my brain goes is here's how we can use it for content marketing. Here's how you can use it for product development. These kinds of things um, are what they talked about, product improvements or product requests. Um, and really, the internally, people start seeing different things. And they're like, oh, this is how we need to use this. So basically, it becomes this document that when we present it to the entire organization, 
each different team and each different person um, who uh, the stakeholder that I interviewed before we began the project has a goal and a perspective that they want to see and that they want to, uh, in a way they want to use the buyer persona. And so they take that and then they're able to run with it and say, okay, here's how, um, you know, product is going to use this information. Um, and it really does inform a lot of like the business decisions, the next uh, you know, vision, the next quarterly insights, the next goal and strategy for the overall business in general. And so with with the new privacy standards that, that have come out with, with iOS 15, I think a lot of marketers have known that this was coming for a while. Does does that impact the the, the process of a buyer persona, if at all, of creating yeah, one and then, you know, applying those strategies? That's the joy. It doesn't at all. Because all of my data comes directly from your email um, list, essentially. So you're going to introduce me to the people who we predetermine are probably a good fit. I want to talk to a varying uh, portion of your audience. So for B to C, essentially, I want to talk to the people who purchased a lot of material, a lot of product, people who have purchased an average amount, and people who have not purchased very much at all. Um, and so, and then if it's B2B, I say, I want to talk to your greatest customers, like the ones who are your biggest fans. They rave about you on social media. They've left uh, you know, positive reviews for you all over the place. They've probably referred you out to other vendors or other people they work with. Um, and then I want to talk to those meh customers, right? Like mm-hmm. they're there, you know, maybe, or you may not even recognize who they are because they've signed up and they're working well. Um, and then I want to talk to your worst enemies. I want to talk to the ones who like churned quickly, the ones who left poor reviews or shouted all over Twitter about how awful you were. Um, and so it really is all the data that you guys already have that's already in your system, that's already in your CMS. Um, and that's who how we're going to reach out and talk to the people. Um, so we don't have to worry about... I'm not scraping third-party data. The digital intelligence analysis tool I use is called Audience and then and Spark Toro. So that comes straight from people's Twitter accounts. So I don't even think that is a third-party data. So really, everything that I'm gathering, it comes from your own actual users, your your buyer personas. We're not creating um, a hypothetical fictional character of who potentially your buyer could be. We're really looking at who your actual buyers are. Now, I mean, obviously, throughout this interview, you're, you're dropping so many different gems. I feel like I'm going to have to go back and take notes on <laughs> during this entire show in order to make sure that I'm doing the right things as well. So with, with your marketing background and, and, and where you focus a lot of your attention, where are you getting your marketing inspiration from? And how are you continuing, I guess, to, to, to build on that inspiration? Oh my goodness. That's a really good question. Um, I, and it's probably going to sound a little cliche, but I love my Twitter community. Like that's Mm -hmm. where I find a lot of um, just really good, smart people doing amazing things. Um, Like Michelle Hansen just wrote a book called Deploy Empathy. And it's all about like in-depth research and this whole like really user research focused. um, And I love that. And so she's inspiring me. You mentioned Caitlin. Caitlin was a pioneer. I feel like she was one of the first to really start really um, advocating for user research and customer conversations in a loud way that um, at least people within the B2B SaaS industry kind of started to take notice and, and figure out that, oh, this is more than just for product. This is more than just for users. This can really um, bleed into marketing. Um, and my inspiration, also the developer community. I do quite a bit of um, work with where the developers are the audience. And so I'm loving going in and looking at how th- this new NFTs, like non-fungible tokens, how these communities, these niche, hyperactive 
um, communities are getting their word out or educating their customers are promoting this very new idea um, that, that they're definitely inspirational to me for sure. I love that. And I love that you brought up NFTs because that's something that I just keep hearing about and I see tweets about. And it's one of those things where it's like, oh God, I don't know if I have the energy to dive into another media. But th- yeah. that kind of brings me to my next question where the rest of this year, we ought, we have, I think, a few, three more months until the new year is upon us. And obviously that comes Crazy. with you know the, the, the baggage of budgeting for the next year. So where are you spending your, your time and attention for the rest of this year compared to early 2022? Oh, yeah. We are at Best Buyer Persona currently working on really establishing our lead generation campaigns. Like we're redoing our website. We're trying to figure out who are, we're going through our own uh, buyer persona. Who are my best clients? Who are my best customers? And how do we find them? How do we reach them? Um, I feel like that job's never done. And I definitely don't want to be the cobbler with no shoes or the person who just preaches it and then doesn't do it. So we're going through our own buyer persona process uh, a little slower because I am pretty busy doing other people's buyer personas, but that's okay, right? Like I'm that solo solo founder running a large company, or not a large company, but running a company, a service-based company. um, And with very little help, I have a VA. And so it's really a matter of like prioritizing what needs to be done. So I I can definitely relate to your audience in that way. Um, And so it's it's one call at a time, one one interview, trying to put this piece together. But that is really our focus, like making sure that we have the, the, the pieces in place for a lead, for an outbound lead gen campaign um, and marketing so that when the new year starts, when people's budgets are settled and they are ready to hire and they are ready to um, potentially look into buying buyer personas, that our process is smooth and ready to go and, and looks clean and, and is just efficient. I love that because it's such a great place to start as, as we're thinking about those 2022 marketing plans. All right, Adrian, where can folks find more of your work? Yeah, I'm at bestbuyerpersona.com and then at Adrian Nicole on Twitter. And then I have a newsletter where we send out one persona tip, a great tool, and then somebody who nailed it um, every other week. So twice a month, it doesn't like blow up your inbox. And that's personas equal people. And that's on the bestbuyerpersona.com website. Awesome. Appreciate your time and insight. So much valuable gems. Uh, Thank you, Adrian, so much. And I'll put all those links in the show description so, so folks can find your work easily. Thank you, Blythe. This was so great. I loved it. Thank you so much. Well, perfect. That, I mean, that that was, we kicked off the show with, with talking about collecting that first party data and how important it is. And then we talked to folks like Adrian with building your buyer personas and how to really hone in on your target audience. So let's switch gears on how we can use all of that insight in order to apply it to our sales process and complete that circular marketing plan. And so let's go ahead and bring in Forrest Dombrow. He is the founder and owner of Solve Sales. Welcome in, Forrest. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, now, now from your bio, I, I, I was reading it and it says, you've been in digital marketing and sales for 17 years. And we know digital has obviously changed over that course of time. Hell, I mean, it's, it's changed so much just within the last year. But what do you think has been the biggest change that affects us all now? Yeah, I think there's sort of a two-part answer. When I first started in digital marketing, it was back in around 2004, uh, Facebook wasn't even really a thing. And um, so what I've seen over the years in particular is a lot of stuff getting better out of the box. So for example, I used to do a lot of work with conversion rate optimization and everybody's website was terrible back then. Now you can get a, a template for free or for, for a small fee and it's got calls to action. It's got a lot of stuff that websites just never had back then. So I think people are starting in a lot better position 
But the other thing is that along with that, there's just so many choices, right? Should I advertise on Facebook, LinkedIn? Where, where should I go? So I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, when I first started, it was, you know, get ranked on Google, have a five-page website, done. Now, there's so many things you could do. And I think people get a little bit overwhelmed trying to or feeling like they have to do everything. So those are some of the big changes I've seen. I, I would definitely co-sign that just because there's so many platforms to be in and it's it's very difficult, I think, for a lot of business owners to to know which place to even get started. Um, but right. but you've been in the game for a, a long time. You're also a former attorney and you're an author of Clone the Ace. And now for our our audience, they're they're mainly in you know transportation warehouse logistics services. Now you you specialize in more of the the, the digital marketing services side of things, but I'm curious to know it, it, how applicable clone the ace and and the teachings that you have in that book if they're applicable to other service based industries. The short answer is they absolutely are. I actually struggled when I came up with the tagline for the book or the subheadline. Should I make it so narrow? Because really, it does apply to a lot of service businesses, but I took my own medicine or advice because in the book, I talk about the importance of specialization and niching and having unique value. So despite the fact that it uh, on the surface is focused on digital marketing agencies, there's lots in there that applies to any kind of service-based business. For example, I talk about the importance of having a consistent process, consistent sales process. That's going to be important almost no matter what you sell. Um, I talk about the importance of positioning and unique value, also something that applies to just about any business. So a lot of the examples and stuff are definitely digital marketing heavy, uh, but most of the core concepts apply across the board. And in fact, one of our largest clients is actually in the freight and logistics industry. Nice. Well, when it comes to you know modern sales teams and and based off of your experience being in the industry for so long, where do you think that most companies get it wrong when when they're either establishing or making changes to their sales team? Yeah, so I think a couple things pop to mind, and it, it kind of depends on the size of the company. We tend to focus on middle, you know, mid market companies that have five to say twenty five sales reps. Um, so it might be a little bit different for solopreneurs or, or giant companies that have hundreds of sales reps. But I think one of the things I see over and over is, especially on the smaller end, um, people hiring sales reps and, oh, they have a sales background. Here's a stack of business cards, if anybody actually still uses business cards. And it's just kind of they're thrown to the wolves, you know, go, go out and go hunt and get us business. And they're expected to kind of do it all and come back with a feast. Um, and so I think that's difficult to find people that can be good at all the various aspects of generating, you know, prospects and, and, and running them through the entire sales process. So I see that as, as a big as a big issue that continues. Now, you've mentioned the importance of processes and, and you're big on system and systems and processes. And in fact, in your book, you mentioned that you have six core sales principles that you use in your process itself. Can you tell us a little bit about each of those six processes? Sure, I'm going to have to cheat and look at my book. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the first one is position your agency to win. And that's what I was talking about before. And it's, it's one of the things, it's our unique differentiator. So a lot of sales consultancies, they go right to sales skills, sales training, prospecting, things like that, how to close. And of course, we do that. But what we like to say is, why don't we spend a little bit of time, a little bit of time up front developing your products, your positioning, your services, such that you're coming to market with something that's unique. 
Um, that's going to make marketing and lead generation easier as well as the actual sales process. So a specific example would be I had a client that was a digital marketing agency. They specialized in e-commerce companies. So when you decided to go to trade shows to generate marketing or when you decided on content marketing, it was very easy to figure out what to speak on. And then in the sales process, um, people would call and say things like, you know, we're talking to two or three other agencies, but you're the only one that focuses on e-commerce or specializes in that. So we're already more interested in you. Um, so that's a first step. That's kind of a foundational principle. After that, I talk about taking an attraction-based approach to lead generation. A lot of people, again, they hand people a stack of business card or a lead list. You know, they want them to bang the phones and outbound cold prospecting is obviously still alive and, and something that can be used to great effect. But what I like to say is if, you, if you've done that positioning work and you figured out the right marketing plan, um, you can start to attract people to you rather than having to bug people and cold call them. So that's a big, a big theme throughout the book. Mm. Um, taking a team selling approach is the third one. Um, that's, in, that's related to the issue I mentioned in that people are expected to do too many things in a lot of cases. You have to be good at you know, lead generation, uh, be great at sales, be great at uh, administrative aspects of, of running the sales process. And it becomes pretty difficult if you're trying to scale. So having a team selling approach is about breaking up the sales process and not having one person expected to do everything. Um, and I think that's really critical as companies want to grow. Um, the next one is talking about being a strategic sales doctor. So that's another problem we see pretty often is that salespeople tend to be order takers. The client calls up, they say they want some, some SEO or some service that they sell, and they just sell it to them or try to sell it to them. Instead of um, taking a more strategic approach, doing a good diagnosis process, uh, kind of acting more like a doctor and figuring out what they really need, because a lot of times people ask for things that are that are the wrong, the wrong solution and things of that nature. So we talk about taking a strategic approach, um, closing deals with authentic and value-based selling. So that's another issue we see is people don't do a good job of of, of presenting the value in their sales process and taking an authentic approach. Um, they may be reading from scripts or just really being too focused on their commission and winning the deal and not authentically really trying to help the customer. Mm. And the last one is tracking and automation. Obviously there's a lot of CRM systems out there, but we don't, people don't tend to track all the right activity to be able to troubleshoot um, their sales process and where they're falling down. So we help people understand what are the steps, how are we going to track it and how can you calculate conversion rates from one step to the next to see where people are dropping off. Now, I, I was listening to an interview that you had mentioned that you regularly like to listen in on, on sales calls to look for those little pieces of insights that you can use in order to, mm -hmm. to better sell to that prospective customer. When you're on these sales calls, what kind of, what kind of nuggets of information are you looking for? Yeah, so what I'm typically keying in on is problems, right? And complaints. So if a customer is complaining about something, that's an insight I can use to help sell because I don't want to just present the benefits of my offering in a vacuum. I want to connect it to what they actually care about. So, you know, getting that insight into what they actually care about, what their problem is. And I think a lot of salespeople, you know, everybody says, you got to listen, you got to listen. 
And I think a lot of people, including myself, can be better listeners and key in for the thing that's really going to connect with that particular prospect. Now, when you're collecting this insight and you're you're mapping out these different processes, how would you select or how would you suggest to a sales member or a salesperson of how they should use the insight that they have in order to maybe help the help, you know, the marketing department? Because I'm I'm of the opinion that I I believe that sales and marketing are, are becoming more blended as far as some of the skill sets that are involved. But I still think that yeah. there's a communication gap with a lot of with a lot of companies between marketing and sales. How would you suggest the sales team help the marketing team out? Yeah, that's a great question. So when 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 I do this, I actually will keep a log and I call it a problem log or complaint log. So as I am listening in on sales calls, I just create create a log. You know, everybody seems to ask about this. Everybody has a a concern about this. And once I have a good list, then I can go back to the marketing team and help them understand, hey, when you're writing the website, the homepage, whatever, make sure you hit these points because these are the things people are concerned about. So kind of just feeding back that stuff to the marketing team and and pointing out maybe, hey, you're not really talking, you're talking about A over here, but really everybody cares about B. And so that's just one simple way to do it. And I think it's, 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 when, even when clients hire me for more of a marketing engagement, um, that's where I start. I always say, I want to listen to, I want to hear what's going on on the front lines. There's no better marketing research you can do. I don't care if you're trying to create personas or strategy or whatever it might be, than listening to actual prospects um, calling in. And you get, so maybe even having the marketing team listen in on some sales calls so they can hear what real people trying to buy these products or services are concerned about. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big proponent of, of marketing being even that first line of offense or really defense. And that's figuring out why yeah. they're calling, where they're coming from, and in order to better help your marketing in the future. Because, I mean, the sales team is probably thinking uh, at a majority of companies that these leads are trash. And so how does marketing <laughs> make their lives easier? Yeah. And so I think that that is one of the, right. the, the better ways to do that. Now, what, what about the teams that are, are working maybe as, as solopreneurs or maybe they have, you know, person wearing multiple hats that, that's trying to tackle sales and marketing? Do, do you have any actionable tips that you can leave the audience with from your book maybe um, that will help them hone in on that marketing and sales strategy now and in the future? Yeah, I'm going to start with one that's not in the book and that people have probably heard before, but... I feel like it's been really important in my career recently. And that's the you just just leveraging outside help. So especially if you're a solopreneur, I know maybe a lot of them don't have a ton of extra money to hire a full-time person. But you know, I recently wanted to do an email campaign and I hired someone on Upwork for $10 to build me a list. That was taking me a long time. In fact, being on the show, I hired someone to help book me on podcasts. So First, you know, can you outsource something for you know that in a way that you can afford it to get it done? That's really important. Um, the other quick actionable things I think that can really help is is keying in on efficiency. And so you can be efficient in a couple different ways. Number one, you can do what I talked about earlier: take a look at your positioning. Can you make yourself a little bit more unique so you don't look like everybody else in your market? That's going to make marketing and sales easier and take a little bit less time. So I think that's something you can you can focus on specialization by industry, but maybe you only do Facebook advertising or whatever your types of services are. Um, so I think that's a quick thing. And then the next thing would be, even if it's on half a sheet of paper, just document your sales process. How do you follow up with leads? 
Um, do you have a template so that when you go into that first meeting, you have the questions that you need to ask to extract the information to actually be a good sales doctor? So I think positioning, um, documentation of the steps, and then some templates um, that you can use along the way, or, or you know, relatively simple steps you can take to to create efficiency and then even outsource some of those tasks. Absolutely love that piece of advice because I think so few uh, really document their own processes. And then when they go to hire someone, it makes that all the more challenging because they don't have any processes documented. All right, Forrest, wh- what, uh, where can people follow more of your work? Where can they find the book? All that good stuff. Sure. So you can find the book on amazon.com uh, for sure. You can also go to our website, solvesales.com. That's like solve a problem and then sales.com. And on there, there's a book page where I give away the, fir- the beginning of the book through chapter two, which actually goes through the entire process of positioning and, and getting that specialization dialed in. So you can do that right, right there on the website. Perfect. Thank you so much for us. This was great insight and, and an important lesson to a lot of folks out there is to hone in on your processes. Appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you, Blythe. Take care. You as well. All right. So we've got we've got some great insight from, from today's guests. And we kicked off the show with the first party data and, and the importance of collecting it. Then we got into buyer personas and then we got into the sales process. So now for my favorite part of the show, and that is the brain candy segment. And this week, I'm bringing it back to the, the marketing TikTok. So this is sort of a behind the scenes look into my process of when I'm scrolling TikTok. If I find videos that I find insightful or ones that I want to check back later, I will always save them to my phone. And that way I have them to go back to and reference. And so I want to bring up the... I got a few clips for y'all for for this week's show, all centered around marketing, all of them that were saved to my phone that I need to go back and actually reference. And this will help sort of paint that, that I guess, a clearer path for you as far as generating ideas and and how to put a lot of the stuff that we've learned today on paper and start to actually work it into our day-to-day and into our processes. So let's go ahead and start with the most important part of the puzzle whenever we're figuring out our marketing and sales process. And that is the customer. Let's go ahead and play the first one. Branding secret you need to know. Your brand storytelling is not about your brand. It's about your customer, who they are and what they desire. For example, here's how Nike does it. Their customer desires to achieve greatness. So they tell stories that resonate with that desire by showing the character's current world, the obstacles they may overcome, the road ahead, and what success looks like. Don't make your stories about your brand. Make them about your customer. Follow for more tips. Love that first one because it really just hits home. It's not about you. It's about them. We live in the world of the internet. People are selfish. They want to know how you can help them, how you can entertain them, how you can inspire them. So if your content of what you're putting out there doesn't speak to those three things, then you're probably doing it wrong. So let's go into our next video video because we're going to be using that insight and we're going to get these down on paper uh, or computer, whichever way that you know you work best. But here's a method of how to do that from a copy text perspective. Here's a mistake a lot of brands make with their copy. They lead with their products features. We're going to help you avoid this mistake with an example at the end. But first, here's a hard truth. No one cares about you or your product. They care about what you or your product can do for them. So here's the formula to writing persuasive single line copy that will hook your customer in. You lead with the benefit, follow up with the feature, and then outline how it's going to make your customer feel. So it goes benefit, feature, desire. So let's apply this to a common product like an electric toothbrush. Get brighter teeth in just seven days with 62,000 brush head movements per minute for a more confident smile. Benefit, feature, desire. 
all the more tips. And if you want to learn how to consistently grow on TikTok, click the link in our bio. Benefit feature desire. That is something that I need to hammer home in my own head. And I've actually saved that video to my phone because I need to go back as soon as I you know, launched a new website. It was one of those things where I need to go back now and I need to hone in on that copy of that messaging. Um, so that's on my personal to-do list. So hopefully you found that video helpful. But because you've watched the first two videos and the importance of writing and how writing can lead just into so many more facets of, of your marketing and sales process. Let's go ahead and show the next clip on how to add that to a good landing page on your website. Name one thing you wish more people in your industry knew about. I'll go first. I wish more entrepreneurs and marketers knew how to actually make a good landing page. Every good landing page needs these four things, and I almost never see them on any of the LPs that I visit. Number one, they need a really strong tagline that qualifies their audience and explains exactly the value that they bring to that audience. Here's the LP for my agency. We help Shopify brands make $4 for every dollar they spend on digital ads. Number two, they need social proof. Here I say, become one of 100 plus success stories, and I have a bunch of logos. I also have a few anonymous case studies like doubling their sales in five months and delivering a 5.6x return on ad spend. Number three, you need a clear call to action. Like book your intro call today. And number four, a simple form fill with no more than five questions. And so bringing that all full circle with what we've been talking about, building your circular marketing plan, if you listen to the advice that we talked about in the first part of the show, that a landing page is a great way in order to collect email addresses and connect with your audience on, on a, a long-term basis. And so using those insights from that landing page, then you can collect that first-party data of a, and, and create those buyer personas and reach out to them in the future and find out their pain points. All those beautiful things that happen when you control your own data. Now, the last video that I want to show you guys is, is really one of my favorite trends on TikTok. And it talks about websites that feel illegal to know. Let's play the last one. Here's another insane website that feels illegal to know. Part nine. It's the world's first presentation software that literally designs for you. It can auto-generate interactive slides that look exactly like this. And it's called beautiful.ai. Choose from either smart slide templates, or you can choose from tons of pre-built presentations just like these. Let's quickly build a social media strategy. Here we've got 13 pre-built slides where we can change everything at the click of a button. Let's select a color palette that fits our theme, update all the charts with interactive sliders just like this, and auto-generate animations that look like these. And then once you're finished, your presentation is gonna look just like this, saving you hours of design time. How good is that? And best of all, there's a free version or you can upgrade to Pro to get all the advanced features. So, you know, that is a great full circle way of looking at how to write great copy, start it with customer research, move it into the sales process, develop those landing pages, and then measure the results. And you can create great graphics and pr great presentations using a tool like what you just saw, or also using a tool like Canva. I swear by Canva, it makes graphic design easy until you can hire an actual professional in order to handle your graphic design. But hopefully all of those videos, all of the insights from our guests today have helped, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, bring 
to bring to light of the things that you can pull apart from each of these different aspects of the show in order to place into your own digital marketing plan or your own digital media plan. Because you're going, the importance of that first party data is really to create that circular marketing plan that you can continue to build on. But that about does it for this week's show. If you want to catch the replay, you can check out FreightWaves TV in order to watch the full replay of this week's show. And then we will be back here next Thursday, starting at 2 p.m. in order to break down more marketing and analytics insight. Thank you so much. 